verdict is in, and this is Gerard Fox with another very important podcast. And this is a show for people in business, small businesses, mid-sized businesses, large businesses, and most importantly, as I always say, tell your general counsel, this is the most important advice they can get in 25 minutes. Today, we are going to talk about bankruptcy, which is a very important issue during the pandemic. I am very honored to have as my guest, a lawyer who is accomplished and one of the top bankruptcy lawyers in the country. I've known him for several decades. Uh, And this is Jeff Pomerantz. Jeff, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Jerry. Yes. Mr. Pomerantz is a partner with Pachowski, Stang, Zeal & Jones, the nation's largest boutique restructuring bankruptcy firm, with offices in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Delaware, and New York. Mr. Pomerantz is a member of the firm's management committee and a co-chair of the firm's creditor committee practice, one of the largest in the nation. Mr. Pomerantz served as the president of the American Bankruptcy Institute, the largest restructuring organization in the United States from April 2016 to 2017. He specializes in retail restructurings, having represented debtors, creditors, committees, and acquirers in retail-related matters. Mr. Pomerantz has been recognized as an outstanding lawyer by the preeminent publication Chambers every year since 2007. He's been named a super lawyer in the field of bankruptcy and creditor debtor rights by law and politics and the publisher of Los Angeles Magazine every year since 2009. He is a graduate of NYU, 1986, Phi Beta Kappa, where he also received his JD, 1989, Order of the Coif. All right, so we have, as we always do on the show, one of the premier experts, and you're getting his time for free today. Jeff, let's start with how is a bankruptcy proceeding started, and what are the different types of corporate and personal bankruptcy proceedings that one can start? So essentially, there are four different types of bankruptcy proceedings, one which applies only to family farmers, which is Chapter 12. So we'll ignore that for today. Chapter 7 is a liquidation proceeding. Any chapter proceeding can be started by the filing of a bankruptcy petition. They all have different consequences on what happens after it's filed. But a Chapter 7 is a liquidation. It could be an individual. It could be a business. Chapter 13 is an individual that's under certain limitations. And a chapter 11 is a reorganization, which again can apply to individuals and it can apply to businesses. But to make matters even more complicated, chapter 11s can result in companies liquidating. Oftentimes companies look at chapter 11 as a much more advantageous way of liquidating than chapter seven, which is primarily due to the fact that in the chapter seven, a trustee unaffiliated business is appointed with the charge of liquidating the company's assets and distributing those in the order of priority under the bankruptcy code, where in a chapter 11, management stays in generally. And in many cases, if a company is liquidating, the lenders and other stakeholders have more confidence in the management to be able to liquidate the assets and maximize value than a trustee who is otherwise unassociated with the business. Now, if I understand correctly, Jeff, the Goal in bankruptcy is to be discharged from all of those debts that are properly listed on schedules that you fill out when you file for bankruptcy, that there are certain debts that are not automatically discharged, like taxes. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what the goal of bankruptcy is. Sure. And of course, in a restructuring, it's 
maybe to get the creditors to the table and get some relief. But maybe you can talk about the goal of bankruptcy. Sure. Again, it's for different chapters and for different types of bankrupt entities or people. The goals are different. For individuals, yes, they would like to seek a discharge. And a Chapter 7 affords them to a discharge if they follow the rules and if no creditor seeks to have their particular debt non-discharged. There is a whole list of non-dischargeable debts under the bankruptcy code that an individual creditor in the Chapter 7 can try to have their debt non-discharged. But generally, the goal, of course, is to get a discharge. In Chapter 13, it's a little different because it's not strictly the discharge in the same way, but it's essentially a payment plan over time to creditors based upon income that's available to the individual. And in the Chapter 11, again, the goal is to come up with a plan, could be a plan of reorganization, could be a plan of liquidation, that essentially replaces all the prior pre-bankruptcy debts with a plan that will pay those debts according to the priority scheme. And essentially the plan is a contract that basically if the debtor complies with after emerging from bankruptcy, the remaining debts that aren't paid would be discharged. But yes, generally it's a discharge. In the corporate world, and especially over the last 10, 15 years, bankruptcy has become the equivalent of mergers and acquisitions process. And what I mean by that is a lot of times lenders are using the bankruptcy to complete asset sale transactions or other types of transactions that will affect change the ownership, either in some circumstances to a third party buyer, or in some circumstances, the lenders who are lending to the company and the company is otherwise worth less than the debt they will seek to have their debt converted to equity and emerge. So a lot of the bankruptcies you're seeing these days and over the last 10, 15 years as a result of where the capital markets have been and how companies are financed these days, which has changed dramatically in the course of my career as a bankruptcy lawyer. But essentially, you're seeing a lot of merger and acquisition type of transactions in the course of a bankruptcy. And so let's say in this pandemic, and there are many businesses that are affected, let's say I own a business that involves numerous restaurant locations. I have rent that is very high. I have different vendors that I owe money to. I've leased certain equipment. Now I'm behind on those payments. How does the business person typically start the discussion about whether they should leg it out? take on the various lawsuits that are filed for late payment, try to wait for the pandemic to be over and hopefully pay people off, beg for time versus just going to see you and saying, look, let's clean this up. Let's reorganize. How does the business owner even know when it's time to have that discussion with you? Sure. And one of the problems is I do in addition to a lot of credit committee work, I also do a lot of company side work in the middle market. And traditionally, owners, CEOs of companies wait way too long. They wait until they're way past due on their trade debt, such that their trade vendors are starting to cause liquidity. They wait until their lenders have lost confidence in them and are unwilling to give them any more rope. And countless times, I'll have companies come in that if they just had come to see me, a few months before something could have been done. 
typically I find that the CEO tends to be optimistic and the CFO tends to be pessimistic. CFO is the one who basically has watching the cash and the CFO knows pretty much when the cash crunch is going to be. So especially nowadays that chapter 11s are used very strategically and retail and restaurants are one area where they're pretty well suited for bankruptcies because of the ability to get out of bad leases. It's imperative that they seek advice at the first sign of trouble as opposed to waiting too long. Because at some point, if you wait too long, it becomes what I call the death spiral. The liquidity is shot because your trade vendors are reducing credit, which cause strain on your financing. And the strain on your financing results in less money for inventory. Inventory shipments being delayed results in sales being lower. And the lack of liquidity generally results in the inability to either build out an omni-channel presence, which is all too important in the last 10 years, given the prevalence of Amazon and other online retailers, and the inability to spend money on CapEx for stores. So it really is a death spiral. So yeah, the short answer to your question is at the first sign of trouble, when the projections are such that you think you're going to be in covenant default with your bank, when you start stretching trade, and then some companies, when they start monkeying around with taxes and don't pay payroll taxes, those are big red flags. Okay. Now, how do bankruptcy lawyers charge for their time? So bankruptcy lawyers generally charge by the hour. Financial professionals of bankruptcy cases generally charge on a fixed monthly fee and a percentage. What used to be called a success fee, it's no longer called a success fee. They're called transaction fees. So the financial advisors and investment bankers and chapter 11s tend to be paid substantial amounts of money regardless of the outcome of the transaction. I think it really, in my experience, that dates back to the crisis in 2008, 2009. I remember we were representing the creditors committee in Circuit City and the investment banker there, Rothschild, came in and were requesting a multi-million dollar transaction fee. And we looked at the document and said, do you get paid on a liquidation? And they said, yes, we do. I said, why should you be paid millions of dollars in a liquidation? And they said, with all the work out there, if you want us to devote our time to basically this case, you're going to have to pay us. And pretty much that became the standard. I sort of liken that to like edge claims fees for airlines. It was justified because the oil prices were so high and they needed to charge baggage fees to account for the oil costs. Well, when the oil prices went down, those baggage fees weren't eliminated. So, but I digress because your question was more for lawyers. But lawyers generally charge by the hour. Lawyers have what are called administrative claims in bankruptcy, which are ahead of the claims of unsecured creditors, but they're the behind the claims of lenders. So there is a degree of risk of payment that a professional going into a case has to be able to adjust for and evaluate to make sure that they don't end up with a substantial receivable and there aren't funds to pay the uh, professional fees. Does that result in bankruptcy firms asking for a larger amount up front? Well, so it's sort of interesting because if you're doing creditor committee work, there's no choice. You go into a case, you pursue the case, you're at risk. You oftentimes negotiate with the lenders for what's called a carve-out. Carve-out meaning that 
no matter what happens in the case, you're protected up to a certain amount. If the exit of a case is a reorganization plan, all administrative claims or professional fees have to be paid, so there's less risk. When you're representing the company, though, that's your cue to basically seek a retainer. There's one firm out there in particular, Kirkland & Ellis, they don't agree to any limitations on their fees, and they get paid regardless of what it costs to the case. They're the only firm pretty much in the country that is able to negotiate that. For the garden variety firm, you're going in, you're negotiating, and depending on the risk of the case, whether it's expected to be acrimonious, is when you have to determine how big a retainer you will ultimately get to protect yourself. What is a preferential transfer? So a preferential transfer, the theory in bankruptcies are that creditors should be treated the same. So in the 90 days before bankruptcy, now we're talking about preferential transfers to non-insiders, which are not officers, directors, or people who control the debtor. The theory is that if the company is making certain payments to certain creditors in the 90 days before bankruptcy, to the exclusion of making payments to other creditors, that it's unfair and that that money should be clawed up and shared ratably with all creditors. It's sort of counterintuitive because sometimes you have creditors get into trouble receiving preferential transfers because they're working with the debtor. They're trying to help the debtor support the business, and then they get sued. So there are a bunch of defenses to preferential transfers. There's if the transaction was in the ordinary course of business, evaluated both based upon the particular creditor and the debtor's prior relationship, as well as industry. There's contemporaneous exchanges of new value, but essentially it's a payment on an antecedent debt, a payment on an old debt. Currently, just one more point, in chapter 11s, the trend has been to have those preferences waived in cases. In many cases, over the last 10, 15 years, as capital structures of companies have changed, there's not much of distribution for a lot of creditors. And the thought is it's very unfair to not only have not a distribution, but have people get sued. So creditors committees across the board have been pretty aggressive in negotiating for preference waivers as part of an overall resolution to the case. Very interesting. Now, what does it mean to challenge a bankruptcy filing as having been carried out in bad faith? Yeah, so you don't see that as much anymore, but if there is a two-party dispute, those are generally not cases that should be in bankruptcy. If, for example, somebody obtains a big judgment against a company and the company then files bankruptcy to avoid the bonding requirements that would be required to stay the judgment under state law. Sometimes there are attacks on those cases as being filed in bad faith. Bad faith has nothing to do with solvency or insolvency. If you're solvent, you could file. If you're insolvent, there's no litmus test to that. But bad faith is usually the two-party dispute where the creditor says, you know, bankruptcy is a collective proceeding where they're only creditor. They're using bankruptcy to avoid essentially the state law bonding requirements. That's pretty much the main place it comes up in. Okay. And when you refer to state law bonding requirements, just briefly, what are you referring to? So you're the litigator, you probably talk to this better than I do, but basically when a judgment is entered, depending on whether it's state, federal court, there's different rules, you basically, in order to prevent the judgment creditor from executing on your assets, you have to post what's called a supersedious bond in order to stay 
the execution while you appeal the judgment. That would prevent the execution on the judgment. Bankruptcy, one of the primary protections of bankruptcy is it creates an automatic stay. So any creditor who has a claim that arose before bankruptcy can't execute on assets after bankruptcy. So essentially a bankruptcy in some sense is the poor man's supersedious bond when the company can't afford it. A lot of courts have held though, that if a company really can't afford to pay the bond, that that would not necessarily be grounds for dismissal of the case. You've talked a lot about committees, creditors committees, and very quickly, how are they formed? Are there firms out there that tend to get in the lead? And what's their role in a bankruptcy? Sure. So I'll start with the latter question first. The creditors committee, the unsecured creditors committee, to be distinguished from parties who have liens. So banks with mortgages are not going to be on secured creditors committee. But the unsecured creditors committee role is sort of be the fiduciary for the whole unsecured creditor class out there and to advocate positions to maximize the value of unsecured creditors. When a company files a Chapter 11 petition, one of the documents it is required to file is a list of its top unsecured creditors. Depending on the size of the case, that list could be 20, 30, 40, 50 people, entities. The U.S. trustee, the United States trustee, which is the administrative arm of the courts, sends out a notice to those creditors seeking interest in being appointed to a creditors committee. The goal of appointment of a creditors committee is to appoint a creditors committee that is representative of the creditors at large. What does that mean? Let's take our retail case. You'll have some landlords whose leases are being rejected, given back, while have claims. They'll get on the committee. You'll have some vendors. You may have some class action plaintiffs with employment action claims. You may have a case, there's bond debt, public bond debt. You may have an indenture trustee. You may have the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation in large companies where there's an underfunded pension plan. So the goal of the U.S. trustee is to appoint one committee that will be comprised of all those separate interests. It's usually a group between five and nine. There are committees that are as low as three. I don't think I've ever seen one higher than nine. And as soon as the company files the bankruptcy and files its list of largest creditors, there are a number of firms out there who are known, and our firm is one of them, for scouring those lists to evaluate what connections they have to hopefully get invited to present their credentials to the committee for the role as a committee counsel. And do they get paid out of the bankruptcy estate? Yes, creditors committees get paid out of the bankruptcy estate. Again, it's an administrative claim. It's one of the things that's negotiated usually at the beginning of the case with a lender who is either providing financing for the company or it's allowing its cash, which it's collateral to be used, is negotiating an acceptable, what's called, as I mentioned before, carve out for the payment of committee lawyers. In many cases, the committee hires financial advisors as well. In one case I'm involved in now, we've, in addition to hiring a financial advisor, we're also hiring a valuation consultant. So there are a lot of different professionals, especially in the bigger cases, that end up getting retained both by the company and by the creditors, all of which are paid by the bankruptcy state. And you may have situations where the secured creditors, mostly banks, try to put together some plan with the debtor ahead of the filing and try to move it through quickly. And, and they're the unsecured creditors committee has to slow it down and try to take a look at what's going on, correct? That's exactly the case. And I'll give you an example of a case that's ongoing right now. 
I'm representing the creditors committee in the case of Taylor Brands. Taylor Brands is the owner of the men's warehouse at Joseph A. Bank, a 1,500-store clothing retailer. The company is financed by asset-based lender, and also behind the asset-based lender is $800 million of term loan debt held not by institutional banks, but by institutional investors. The proposed plan in that case is to convert a portion of the term loan lender's debt into the equity of the company. And basically the company will shut down a few hundred stores and will emerge from chapter 11. Our goal as creditors committee is to evaluate what should the unsecured creditors receive? What is the value of the enterprise coming out of bankruptcy? Is there value above the existing debt? And to negotiate a favorable treatment for those creditors with the lenders. And if they can't negotiate a favorable treatment, then conduct a valuation fight or bring certain claims against, you know, to the extent they exist. So that's very right. And those cases are called pre-arranged plans. A lot of time people hear the concept of pre-packaged plans. There's a difference of even a pre-packaged plan and a pre-arranged plan. A pre-packaged plan is a plan where the voting for the plan has occurred outside of bankruptcy and the company files bankruptcy with the affirmative vote of all the consenting creditors in the impaired classes. In those cases, typically you're going to solicit the votes of the lenders, whether it's public bond debt. And the reason why you would do a prepackaged plan is you could bind dissenting members of a class in a bankruptcy to a certain transaction where you would not be able to do that outside of bankruptcy. However, unless you're going to unimpair other creditors like the trade, you are really talking about a prearranged plan where you've prearranged with the majority of your debt holders, and then you're going to fight with your other classes like unsecured credits. More and more, you're seeing prearranged plans rather than prepackaged plans because of the significant amount of trade debt and oftentimes legacy debt that even if it's going to cost several million dollars to fight with the unsecured creditors and reach a deal, you'd rather do that than let 50, 75, 100 million dollars of pre-petition trade debt be unimpaired and have to pay it out on the other end. In what industries are you seeing the most Chapter 11 filings these days during the pandemic? Yeah, so basically for the last two, three years, it's been consistent. You're seeing a tremendous amount of distress in retail, even before the pandemic. Over the last several years, a function of the U.S. retail landscape being overbuilt. I've seen statistics that compare what the square foot retail space per capita in the United States compared to like Canada and England. It's just dramatically higher. Everyone was building malls. Everyone was opening stores over the last several years. Oil and gas is another area which is very significant. People are aware the gas prices have plummeted over the recent past, and you're having a lot of exploration and production companies commence Chapter 11 filings, and that's also trickling down to the oil service providers who are also filing. So those are the two areas. You also see some distress in healthcare. And when I say in retail, it's also restaurants has been a big, big part of it, especially since the pandemic. How has your practice changed during the pandemic? You're always sort of an unpopular person, whether it's in 2008, 2009, when the world financial crisis was hitting, and now with the pandemic, 
Because in those times, the amount of distress, the amount of work is just exponentially increasing. So we are finding a significantly more opportunities all across the spectrum, both on the company side, the creditors committee side, and individual creditors. We've been hiring additional lawyers over the last several months. And unfortunately, the expectation over the next several months, year, year and a half, is going to be more than the same. So look, I try not to be jaded. Having done this for 30 years and seeing the distress I do, I recognize that all these companies and retailers that are closing hundreds of stores, there's a real loss of employees. There's a loss of vendor relationships. There's a trickle-down effect. And I try to always be sensitive to that and never be jaded by it because it's real distress happening on Main Street that really doesn't necessarily get thought about on Wall Street as much as it should. Now, this show, we talk a lot about keeping costs down when using lawyers. And what are some tips for managing your costs in a bankruptcy? I think it's really how you staff the case and appropriately staffing it. I always get asked when I'm, particularly when I'm representing creditors committees or trying to represent creditors committees, what is my blended hourly rate going to be? What is the blend when I add up all the hours of all the people in the firm working on the case? And what's the cost? What's the blended hourly rate? I always think that's the wrong question. And I always think the sophisticated buyer of legal services is really wanting to know, okay, who's working on the case? Because my experience is that the lawyers who are charging, you know, now north of $1,000 an hour, who are the strategists behind the case, they are worth every penny. It's really the third, fourth, fifth, six-year lawyers that are billing at some big firms in excess of $1,000 where I think the problem is. But I really think it comes down to appropriately staffing. Our firm is sort of unique because we have 65, 70 lawyers around that, 38 are partners. Of the other 32, 25 or 26 of them practicing 10 plus years and are of counsel. We have very few junior associates. We don't have people just running around, scurrying around doing the research. But when I have an intake, I bring in a case, I try to figure out how it's best to effectively staff the case, manage it appropriately. Because look, I'm going to get hired again and again if I could provide a good work product at an efficient cost. And I'm always sensitive to that. And by the way, that's an excellent point. Audience, you know, I'm always speaking to you, letting you know what questions to ask. And it surprises me, and I'm sure it surprises Jeff, how few clients will come in and ask, who exactly is going to work on my case? And maybe ask to have them brought into a conference room or a Zoom call and meet them, ask them questions. Ask not just the lawyer you met with, but the lawyers who'll be working with them. Have you worked with this partner before? How long have you been at the firm? Have you handled this type of matter before? You can actually ask the partner to change the staffing. So remember, you've got to empower yourself to be able to save on legal services, and these are questions you're allowed to ask. I'm very sensitive to the bait and switch. I will never pitch a case if I don't plan to work on it. So I think that's a very good point, Jerry. Yes, it is, because you can meet a very experienced lawyer who never touches your file. And then if you have a second-year lawyer as opposed to a 10-year experienced lawyer, they may be spinning their wheels and learning the law, whatever it is, on your dollar. Well, Jeff, you are, and I'm going to just tell the audience, Jeff's very humble. He's one of the very, very best bankruptcy lawyers in the entire country. 
this is complicated stuff. It can't be covered in 25 minutes or a half hour. But uh, Jeff is going to tell you how to get in touch with him. If you own a business and you're considering a bankruptcy, remember what he said, don't wait too long. You know, he's a great guy to call up. And if he can't handle the matter, he'll refer you to another lawyer who he's very sure can handle it. Jeff, how does my listening audience get in touch with you? So our firm website is pszjlaw.com. My email address is jpomerantz. My last name is spelled P-O-M-E-R-A-N-T-Z at pszjlaw.com. And I also give my cell phone out just regularly because especially now in the pandemic, I'm much more reachable there. And my phone number is 310-489-0285. Yes, and I want to make sure the audience knows Pachowski, Stang, and Zeal is one of the preeminent firms in the entire country. But what I love about them is I met them decades ago when I was working with a real estate lawyer by the name of Hush Sahaley. And Hush was a real miser. His clients weren't going to pay any more than they had to for bankruptcy counsel. And they wanted very good results. And that entire firm always, always met the goals of the client well within budget. And ever since then, every time I refer a matter to Jeff and his group, the client comes back through difficult circumstances, mind you, but very happy, very well advised, not surprised by bills. So if you're a business out there and there's lots of you listening because you clicked on this, you should reach out to Jeff. He's a great guy, someone you like talking to. He's very honest and direct, so he's not going to mislead you. He's not going to try to have you file bankruptcy if you don't need to, and he's going to answer all your questions carefully. With that, Jeff, thank you for your time. It is a real honor to have you on the show. And I hope that the audience really listened carefully, took notes, but Jeff can go over any of these points and will and should in greater detail. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Jerry. Really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.